I'm Laura Axtell, the host of Podcast, and we are very excited to welcome you to Season 6. We're grateful for the support that Podcast has received for Seasons 1 through 5, as we've explored a variety of educational topics with experts, educators, and parents. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, a foundational reading program based on the science of reading that can be delivered in person, virtually, and in a blended learning model with instructional software for students in kindergarten through 12th grade. Visit www.readinghorizons.com to learn more. This season will be a bit different. We will be focusing all six episodes on a specific topic with a range of information and experiences from our guests. The topic for season six is the social and emotional impact of stress and anxiety, particularly related to education, and how the COVID-19 pandemic has contributed to significant increases in these areas for many adults and children. As always, our guests will focus on solutions, and this year, in the midst of so much uncertainty, how to improve self-care for ourselves and our children. To begin Season 6, our guest today is Dr. Lori Desatel. Dr. Desatel is a professor, researcher, and author who specializes in the study of the brain, behavior, and social-emotional learning in schools. I discovered Dr. Desatel's work when I read an article written before the pandemic that contained this quote from her, anxiety is the number one learning disability right now. That is such a powerful statement and something that many teachers and parents were seeing long before schools had to transition to remote or hybrid learning. Students that were so stressed and anxious that they didn't want to go to school, or they developed physical symptoms like stomach aches or headaches or had severe emotional reactions to tests, just so many issues. On this episode, Dr. Desatel will focus on several key findings about the brain and stress and how that impacts students in school and at home. She'll also apply some of what's happening during COVID and talk about options and solutions. Dr. Desatel, welcome to PodClast. Thank you, Laura, so much. I'm very happy to share this time with you and and parents and educators today. So we're going to talk about a lot of things, but could you start by giving um, just a little bit of an introduction for yourself, as well as just kind of how you got into this topic and this work? Thank you for that question, because I feel like we all are evolving every year. And so I was a special education teacher. I taught children with the classification of emotionally disturbed or behavior disordered, for seven years. And then I was a school counselor. And following that time, I became a mom for the first time. And I took some time to parent while I was working part-time. And at that point, I was really looking, as I began my doctoral work, looking at what are the thoughts and what are the feelings and sensations that our children and youth are experiencing when there is, you know, experiences that are challenging, adversity in their lives, trauma in their lives. So as I moved into this work of applied educational neuroscience, I became excited at the possibilities of the brain's plasticity. And I want to share, Laura, that as we talk this morning, this is as much about parents as it is educators, 
because I would have been a very different mom to my three young children had I known what I know today about the brain's ability to change structurally and functionally with every experience it is confronted with. So that I, I always say to my own students, this is our superpower as human beings. We have this incredible uh, possibility and ability to bring the brain and body into integration and also to repair and to heal from past um, adversities and trauma. We are now understanding that the brain goes through significant developmental periods. And in those times, that brain begins to wire, neurons begin to wire together. We call those synapses based on the experiences that are in front of us. We also know that the brain is an experience dependent organ. So it acts much like a muscle, but it literally wires to those experiences in school, at home, in free time. I mean, every second of the day, our brains are in constant flux, constant change. So knowing that, we also understand that the brain is an historical organ. So it keeps track most often subconsciously or unconsciously of our experiences. And when we think about the complexity of the brain, a, a healthy brain, and this is really defined by Dr. Dan Siegel, is a brain that is integrated, a brain that is has organized so well from the back to the front, from the inside out based on experiences. Not only am I teaching at Butler in um, undergraduate and graduate courses, but I'm also back in the classroom. And that's very important for me to share because all of the practices that I'm gonna share today and these experiences are from a course release where I am in the classroom two times a week integrating co-teaching and working beside teachers. I stay in a classroom for a semester co-teaching, and then I sometimes will stay for the entire academic year or I will move into a different grade level, but I've been doing this for seven years. So these practices that I'm gonna be sharing today are not out of a lab and they're not out of a textbook. So um, you mentioned from the back to the front. So there are these different parts of the brain. Could you talk a little bit about why that's important for educators and parents to understand? Absolutely. So we know that the behaviors of our children are really signals and they're communicating. And this is really important to understand. I'm learning this every day. Behaviors are communicating brain and body states. So the brain, when we're born, develops in, from, the, from the brain stem to the cortex, the prefrontal cortex. And most of us, when we are born, are born with a fully developed brainstem. Now, if there's a premature birth, that's not always the case. But the brainstem is the seat of autonomic functioning. So it's where we do everything without thinking, breathing, digesting, sleeping, all of those, you know, nervous, not nervous system, but all those autonomic functions occur in the brainstem. What also happens in the brainstem is the stimuli from our external world and our internal world begins the organization there. So for instance, when we're babies and we hear a loud crashing sound, we jerk and, and our heart beats fast. And same as adults, 
But in infancy, we need a predictable, emotionally available, consistent caregiver to regulate the stimuli coming in. Because when we are wet or hungry or we are in pain, we have that caregiver to hold us, to give us rhythm, to give us touch and pressure and a soft voice. And that's how the areas of the brain stem become integrated when the stimuli comes in. It happens through what we call co-regulation. And a teacher can do that too, and I'll talk about that. Then as the brain develops into the limbic system, you have these two oval almond-shaped structures called the amygdala. And I'm being very schematic during this podcast because the brain is complex and it doesn't work in regions and systems. So the amygdala is our brain's emotional smoke detector. And when that stimuli comes in, that amygdala or those limbic areas of the brain are literally in every moment detecting for us based on our experiences, if that stimulus is safe or dangerous. So think about your limbic system, the amygdala, right above the ears, these two almond-shaped clusters of neurons, that's our fight flight. And when we are in a dysregulated state, the amygdala is firing and it begins to shut down this part of the brain. I know that you can't see me, but I'm putting my hands on my forehead and right behind my eyebrows. If you just like when you check to see if it, you know, someone's warm, you know, has a temperature. When you put your hands here, this is the prefrontal cortex. And this is the last part of the brain that develops. And it doesn't oftentimes develop until, you know, mid to late 20s, early 30s. And this is where we do life and do school. So this is where we pay attention. We have emotional regulation. We have good, strong working memory if we have the opportunities to exercise that executive function. And so when your amygdala is firing, this prefrontal cortex begins to atrophy or go offline. So that's why when kids are upset or you're upset, we as adults are upset, we don't think clearly because we don't get that strong oxygenated glucose blood flow to this area of the brain. And for teachers and parents, this is so critical to know because many times we discipline children when our amygdala is firing and our kids amygdala is firing. And when that happens, nothing good comes from that. So my work in the schools is really going in, sharing this neuroanatomy. My third and fourth graders this year know what the amygdala is. They know what the prefrontal cortex is. They can tell you about the brainstem. They can tell you about neuroplasticity. Because when we talk about the science underneath behaviors, we feel empowered and we feel relieved. So that's why this is so important for educators and parents to understand brain and body state. So how would a teacher or a parent recognize if a student is starting to have that, you know, is upset and things like that, especially if they shut down or they see some behavior, how do they recognize it first? And then what is their best next step? That's a great question. And I think the very first, so when you recognize it, you begin to look at the behavior as the signal, like, uh uh-oh, I'm hearing a different tone from my child or from my student. 
I'm looking at their posture. I'm looking at their facial expression because 93% of our communication is nonverbal. So when you begin to watch the child, watch the adolescent, and, and really when we have strong connections with our students, and that's key, when we are creating touch points, we really can tap into when a student or one of our own children begins to dysregulate. So when that begins to happen, the worst thing we can do is to start talking at them. Because when you are functioning from the amygdala, we call that, or the brainstem, the survival response doesn't hear words, doesn't process consequences, doesn't care about rewards or stickers or logic. So the best thing we can do, the very first step is checking in with myself and being honest and, and, and knowing that, you know what, we both are gonna need some time. We might need to take a couple of minutes and take some deep breaths. We might each need to go get a sip of water. We might, we, we might share that we need some space and we'll come back and talk about this when we both have our words and when we're functioning from our prefrontal cortex. But if you come into a classroom or you go to school every day and you come in knowing that you are going to be failing, that you can't read like others, that you can't spell, that, um, you know, that or, or, or the emotional, the rejection and the humiliation, you know, that comes from microaggressions and, and racism in our schools. And so, I mean, it's school can also be a place that can generate those types of adversities. But, but I do want to say this too, with regard to adverse childhood experiences, some of the listeners may be thinking, oh my gosh, this is awful. But what we do know is that the resiliency research, which is over 50 years old, it, it shares with us, and so does Harvard's University Child Development Center, is that the brain is constantly trying to return to homeostasis. So those students who have an adult or a couple of adults, those who have some significant connections, they have relationship can be those protective factors or those emotional buffers in their lives. That brings us to, you talked about school, trauma that sometimes is created or reinforced in school. Could you talk a little bit about anxiety now? Because uh, your quote actually really made me so interested. And your quote was that anxiety has become the most common learning disability. Oh, absolutely it has. And I think not just here in our country, but around the world. And and it's not just with children. I see this in young adults. I see this in our college students, in my graduate students. It's become so prevalent that we've almost normalized it. And there are so many different definitions about, you know, w- with anxiety. But for me, it feels anxiety. I think we've got to understand what it is. And I think it's ubiquitous. I mean, I, I feel like It's just like, you know, all of us have a personal relationship with stress. So I think all of us have a personal relationship with anxiety. It's not a blanket definition, but it is when the energy is overwhelming. It's when information is coming in too much, too fast and too soon. And we're not able to integrate it in ways that, you know, feel calming, meaning that we can't function from this prefrontal cortex. So, you know, it's really interesting too, because experiences are how the brain develops. 
And But it's not just experiences, Laura. It's also our perception of experiences. It's how we see an experience. And how we see it, our perceptions are intimately connected to all of the biological systems in our body. You know, it affects how our perceptions, thoughts, beliefs, feelings. When we think about anxiety, you know, that's really perception to me. That's how we are kind of internalizing and integrating these experiences that are coming in. And so we know that our immune systems are affected, our uh, digestive systems are affected, every system in our body, perceptual system, I said hormonal system, our cardiovascular system. And so when you understand that the brain and the body are not separate, that there is a beautiful bi-directional communication happening all the time. And we know that as teachers, how many times have kids complained of, bell- of tummy aches or stomach aches, or, you know, they come to school and they have, you know, headaches or, you know, they just, they get nauseous. These systems are constantly communicating. So anxiety I love the work of Bessel van der Kolk, and his book is entitled The Body Keeps the Score. And I think that's so true. So anxiety manifests in ways that sometimes kids can't verbalize it, and neither can adults, but we feel it and we we sense it in our bodies. So it's very similar to what you talked about earlier. It's like a smoke detector. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll take a short break. Back in a moment. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. This season, you'll be hearing directly from educators and parents as they share how Reading Horizons is making a difference with students during in-person, hybrid, and remote instruction to prevent learning loss. I can say that my teachers are really enjoying the Reading Horizons program. Every day, someone tells me something positive about it, from how it is helping to reach the special education students to how their students are actually looking forward to the lessons every day. As a reading interventionist, I get to teach the same lessons four times each day as I pull students in grades first through fourth. And for a lot of these students, it's the second time that they're hearing those lessons. However, they never get bored and they're always engaged. I love how I can now spot phonological issues with students that I didn't before. For more information, visit readinghorizons.com. Let's talk about anxiety from two angles that you've already kind of touched on. Let's talk about it first from the perspective of language disabilities, because they are by far now the most common classification in special ed, you know, significantly reading. And so we've got, we know we've got a huge population of students with dyslexia or who have reading difficulties and things like that. Wouldn't that be contributed to by, you know, a student walks into a classroom who's a struggling reader and never knows if the teacher is going to call on them to read out loud. And so really, they just sit there so anxious about what could possibly happen, or they're going to be timed on a test, and am I going to get it done in time, and those kinds of things. Well, so this is a great example of how we need to look at discipline on the front end. Because, so I want to say two things. I want to say three things to this. I hope I can remember them in my prefrontal cortex. Number one, we label and classify and box in students. 
we say specific learning disabilities, we say dyslexia, we say emotionally disturbed, we say behavior disordered, other health impaired, anxiety, attention deficit disorder. These are so much more than labels and classifications. What we need to share with our students and we need to understand is there's nothing wrong with this child. There's nothing wrong with this person. The brain is firing and wiring and reordering connections in different ways. It's the same thing with children on the spectrum. So in specific learning disabilities, this isn't a disability, it's a specific learning reordering of neural networks. And so when the adults around that child begin to share the neuroanatomy, do you know how relieving and empowering that feels to know that I don't have this disability and this disease or this dysfunction that my brain has reordered based on how I learn and how I experience the world, that's empowering. So that's the very first thing I wanna say is we've all gotta get our brains and bodies around this labeling that we do. It's archaic. Are, are you okay with learning differences? Um, I think so. I like to stay with the neuroanatomy. I think learning differences is, is great, but why do we learn differently? It's because of brain architecture. You know, and that again is because that's not static, that's dynamic. So we know that, yes, we may never read in the same ways that, you know, other students read or learn in the same ways, but we have this potential to learn in extraordinary ways, but it happens through different pathways in the brain. And so the other thing that I want to share too is that you're exactly right. When kids are called on and, and they don't know if it's coming, chronic unpredictability is hard on the developing brain. It's one of the conditions that can be most damaging to brain architecture. So we as educators and as parents need to be preventative, brain aligned and relational when we set up those routines in our classroom, letting our students know that I'm going to be calling on you third or after such and such paragraph. And this is what you can expect. We've got to set the table and create what we call islands of success for children so that they begin to feel capable because there's nothing worse than, and, and this is what we do know, every child will choose to look misbehaved before they look stupid in front of their peers. And so we see kids derail with regard to behaviors because of this task, academic task that is in front of them. So we have to understand, again, the, those behaviors are signals. And, and that's why it's so important for us to be preventative and to work at this on the front end and to understand um, how damaging it can be to that developing brain and body to live in that chronic unpredictability. And people say, you know, I get resistance from teachers. They say, come on, Lori, this kid needs to live in the real world. Well, <laughs> They're never going to be prepared to live in the real world unless we give them opportunities to feel and sense and process some success and to feel what it's like to come from the prefrontal cortex and not always in that fight flight 
or survival brain. So does it help for teachers to, I mean, we certainly know this can be really supportive for students on the autism spectrum and things like that, but to make things more predictable. And that could even be true when we're, you know, because things are changing so much with COVID. One week we're remote, the next week we're hybrid, the next week we're in person, and then we're shifting all the time. Would it be helpful if teachers spent a little bit more time explain to their students, this is what we're going to do this week. (laughs) This is how we're going to do it. And to make things more predictable for them so that they wouldn't live in that state of always wondering what's going to happen next. What are they, what are we doing today? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, predictability is one of the best conditions for brains to feel safe and connected. So we, we predict experiences based on unpredictable or predictable experiences from the past. And that's what I mean when I say the brain is an historical organ. So predictability is key to this framework that we're teaching everywhere because it's looking at your routines and your procedures and how you transition. And so giving kids preparation and giving them practice and scenarios for returning to hybrid. We did that here in Indianapolis. Right before my large district, we heard a week before they were going to be remote again. They had been hybrid. And so the week before Thanksgiving, that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday before that Thanksgiving holiday, we practiced with the students. The teachers went through the remote learning. They went through the challenges. They went through the obstacles and they practiced every day that week together as a class. So it's it's extremely important. So let's talk, you know, let's continue talking about COVID for a second and that anxiety piece. So obviously lots of parents are anxious for lots of reasons. And teachers are anxious. You know, they're in classrooms with lots of students and they're worried about their own health and things like that. So what can adults do or what can they consider to help them, first of all, navigate their own issues, but then, you know, what can they do to help their students become more resilient when they identify some of these behaviors or when a student is shutting down? Well, I think one of the first things we have to understand is that human beings are contagious. Emotions are contagious. And when we, I mean, they are as contagious as this virus. So we pick up on each other's nonverbal communication in all moments. We read each other. We are mind readers of one another. And children and adults who are living in that fight, flight, or shutdown are actually from a more dysregulated brain and body state are more acutely reading the um, responses of others because they are in what Dr. Stephen Porges calls, they are looking at the neuroception of each other. And neuroception is looking at your environment and deciding what is safe and what feels dangerous. So one of the things that we can, how we can help each other and and this is so true for adults and also for our children, is to understand that to calm the nervous system is to meet the nervous system where it is. And that is through sensory practices, breathing deeply, moving, rhythm, pressure, touch, warmth. Our body's language is sensation. And also survival is felt between lower regions of the brain, mid 
midbrain and brainstem and body. So that those are our body is about survival. We pay attention in our bodies to what feels safe or what feels dangerous. So we in our schools have created what we call focused attention practices. And these are procedures and routines that we use at home, we use at school, and it's focusing on a stimulus, always our breath, it's taste or sound or a visualization. And our kids, this is as much a part of their day, several times a day as anything else we do in school. It primes the brain for cognition. If you say meditation in schools today, people still get weird about that. And actually, meditation is an executive function practice. I I just can't emphasize that enough. Meditation is only spiritual or religious if if that's the connections that we make. But it really, when you're focusing on your breath, you are focusing on a stimulus that begins to enhance and build that nice oxygenated flow to those executive functions. So we, every day, several times a day, we use our breath in the classroom. We use movement. We, we use movement through brain intervals. And um, these are a part of our procedures and routines. And it's the same thing at home. Also, we know art, drawing, artwork, coloring, writing in journals. That's a touch point. You can journal your thoughts and feelings. Anything you can draw gets it out of the body. Linda Chapman has some wonderful work on that. When you can draw it and take it out of the viscera and the brain and put it into a soft container outside of yourself, that's calming to the nervous system. For the schools that you're working with, do you help them at all translate that to parents? Like are, are parents becoming aware of these practices so their kids can do some of these same things at home? Yes, absolutely. We've held over, co- during COVID, we, my um, colleague, Michael McKnight and I have held three or four different parent community Zoom presentations on this framework. And my goal in this year, it was my goal before COVID struck, but that's kind of an excuse because I feel during this pandemic that parents have been more present. They've, and it's not that they don't want to be, it's just that it's so hard you know, for, I mean, we, everybody's working two and three jobs, we're parenting, we're helping our kids with remote learning. But one of the things that I've noticed during this time is that because of the access to technology, and you don't have to drive someplace to go to a presentation, we've had more parents involved through remote presentations, which is a really, I want to continue that even after COVID. I want to offer that as an opportunity, because this, this is a significant part of this. Last question. So you're a professor, which means you're working with often teachers before they get into the classroom or in graduate school, maybe that they've been teachers for a period of time. It, how are you translating this work to the, the, the adults who are going to be or are those teachers in the classroom? Well, so thank you for asking that. And it's a great way to finish this conversation. Our pre-service educators the adults that are in preparation in our universities currently are not being prepared for this work. And it's frustrating. University curriculum is very difficult to change. You know, I think very oftentimes um, you have to go through the politics of higher education. So, but what it's interesting because 
as I share my response to you, my university is starting to move in this direction. Butler University is beginning to see and understand, deeply understand how we need to shift in how we prepare our educators for 2021 for trauma and adversity and not just being trauma responsive because that has a million definitions, but how can we create cultures in our buildings that are building on equity, that are building on brain aligned practices that meet students and adults in brain and body state with an emphasis on adult brain and body state. So I'm actually through this next semester going to be meeting with my colleagues at Butler and we're going to be looking to see how we can integrate this more into our undergraduate program because it it just has to be a very specific area of preparation. And and in any way do you think that COVID has been helpful in the way that it has shaken up what traditional education has kind of looked like and now we have to really think of all the other options we have to support our students and our teachers there are there are so many issues around you know teachers people going into the profession people leaving the profession is there now more of an opening for you to present those ideas and have people hear them yes absolutely and i think we're all feeling that i think not only just in the applied educational neuroscience arena and social and emotional learning, but also in how we use technology, in how we include, we are inclusive, you know, with the parent population. Also, how we are addressing racism in our schools, because, you know, we had the pandemic, but we also, all of us across the world experienced racism up close and personal in throughout the summer. And, and it wasn't a singular event. It's been happening forever. So this is this has really been a learning kind of relearning and remembering of how you know we can get locked into systemic ways of being and this pandemic has opened the door for us to make some I think very significant shifts in um, relationships in instruction and looking at how we can integrate more of the, the, the brain-aligned practices that become everyday practices. What a great way to end. Thank you so much for that information. And really, just I, I think more than anything, it's the hope. Like that, that the more we learn about these kinds of things, it really does support students and parents and teachers. And that can only be good. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to having you join us again for the following episodes in Season 6. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. Combining professional development with teacher-led instruction and data-driven software that can be accessed at home allows students to receive targeted reading instruction that leads to improved reading outcomes. For more information, visit readinghorizons.com.